Hello, my name is Ryan Prost, and you're listening to Unwritten History from HistoryAddicted.com, a podcast that explores some of the forgotten stories from the past. One of the things you'll notice if you spend a lot of time reading history is that sometimes there isn't a lot of hard evidence for some of the events or people that we take for granted. It's especially the further back you go. And that makes sense, right? They didn't have videos or photographs. Everything wasn't preserved digitally like it is now. If we know about something today, it's because someone wrote it down and that somehow managed to make it to us. And of course, that doesn't always happen. For instance, we don't know for certain that the Norse mythology that we know today was actually what the people who followed that religion believed. All we know about it comes from a single account called the Prose Edda, written by a 13th century Icelandic scholar. And the story goes that a man named Lycurgus set down the laws of Sparta that were designed to create the perfect warriors. But if you were to meet a Spartan from around the time of the Battle of Thermopylae, even he couldn't tell you for certain if Lycurgus ever existed. And then there are the stories that seem like myths until we find some evidence to support them, like the existence of the city of Troy. For a long time, it was thought to have just been a story, until a German archaeologist found what are thought to be the remnants of the famous city in Turkey. Well, the story I'm about to tell you falls somewhere in between. The best way to describe it is probably unproven, but possible. And... It starts with a man named Marcus Licinius Crassus. Crassus was born sometime around 115 BC in what was then the Roman Republic. And based on what we know about him, he was probably one of the richest men in history. See, Crassus made his money in a lot of different ways, and some were a little less savory than others. For instance, Crassus owned a lot of slaves, and some of these slaves he trained to become what was basically an ancient fire department. At the time, Rome had a lot of what you might call today slums, and the people who lived there lived in what were basically like large wooden apartment buildings. And as you can imagine, at a time when people cooked all their food over an open flame, these buildings caught on fire quite a bit. So basically, so basically, Crassus would wait until a fire broke out in one of these buildings. Then he would show up with a few dozen slaves and say to the owner, hey, Your building's on fire. In a few minutes, it will be gone. You'll have nothing. But, tell you what, sell it to me right now, and you'll at least get a few coins. And once the owner agreed to sell, Crassus' slaves would put the fire out. Thanks to little schemes like this, Crassus ended up with a lot of money. And in Rome, like anywhere else, that meant power. But even in Rome, there was one thing Crassus couldn't buy. Respect. See, in Rome, respect came from military conquest, and Crassus had never really led a successful campaign. So around the time he was 62, Crassus seems to have felt like his opportunities to get some military glory were slipping away. So he did what rich Romans often did. He hired his own army, and he began looking for someone to conquer. The people he settled on were the Parthians. The Parthians were basically a continuation of the ancient Persian Empire, and they controlled a lot of what is today the Middle East. Now, today, we often think of the Romans as constantly expanding. 
always looking for someone to conquer. But that's not exactly how they saw it. A Roman writer once argued that Rome had conquered the world in self-defense. They would find an enemy they needed to conquer to feel safe, and in turn that would expand their borders, which led to a new enemy they needed to conquer. So the basic rule for Romans was that you needed a good reason to go to war. And once the Senate found out about Crassus's plan, they argued that he didn't have one, and so he couldn't go to war with the Parthians. Crassus, of course, didn't really care, and so he just announced that he was going to do it anyway. The Senate, in turn, put a ritual curse on Crassus and his army. And even if you don't put a lot of stock in curses yourself, you have to wonder if maybe it was on Crassus's mind as his army reached what is today Syria on the border with the Parthian Empire. There they sent word to a local king who was a friend to Rome that they were planning on invading Parthia. Well, the king was all right with the idea. In fact, he even sent a few thousand cavalry along to help. And he gave Crassus some advice. See, he told Crassus to come through Armenia. It was a longer route, but it was safer than marching across the desert directly into Mesopotamia, which was Crassus's plan. But Crassus, who one gets the sense was never one for taking advice from other people, ignored it and set off into the sun-baked wastes. After all, he had some help from a local chief named Aramenes, who promised to show him the quickest route. But what Crassus didn't know was that Aramenes was working for the Parthians. Aramenes led the army through the deepest part of the desert, far from any source of water, and within a few days, men and horses were dying of thirst. Within a few days, men and their horses were dying of thirst. Meanwhile, the Parthians, under the general Serena, were planning to meet Crassus near the town of Carhai. The Romans and the Parthians met each other outside the town. Disorganized and surrounded, the Romans began to panic. See, the Romans conquered their empire with legionaries. By this time, the legions were made up of tough, professional soldiers. They committed to 25 years in the legion in exchange for a piece of land when, or if, they survived to claim it. In the meantime, they spent their lives learning to fight and endure backbreaking physical labor. They were heavy infantry, armed and armored by the state and supremely disciplined. But here, in the desert, the legions were at a serious disadvantage. That's because the Parthians fought on horseback with bows, and the bows they were using were powerful composites of wood and horn. These bows could launch an arrow the distance of a football field and punch through shields in the heaviest armor, and that's exactly what happened. The Romans deployed in the standard formation while the Parthian horsemen began to circle them and rain down arrows. The arrows ripped through the legion. There are accounts of arrows punching through shields and pinning the legionaries' arms or pinning their feet to the ground while the Parthians constantly retreated. The legionaries tried to get close enough to fight, but they couldn't catch the Parthians. The only chance the Romans had was to stay together and behind their shields and find some way to drive the Parthian archers off. So Crassus sent his son Publius with what cavalry he had to try and catch the enemy. But in the dust the armies kicked up, Crassus lost sight of Publius. Thinking his son might be in danger, Crassus ordered the legions to advance. Of course, this just opened them up to more arrow fire. As the Romans got more and more separated and disorganized in the dust surrounding the battle, the Parthian cataphracts arrived. These were heavily armored horsemen that the Parthians used to break enemy armies, and they immediately began charging into the disorganized Roman lines. For the rest of the day, the Romans tried to hold out against these repeated charges. Then, a lone Parthian horseman comes over the hill. He's holding something up on the end of a spear. It was Publius's head. With the sun setting, 
Crassus ordered the legions to retreat, leaving their wounded and dying behind. The next day, the Persian general offered Crassus a peace deal. The Romans would be allowed to leave safely if they gave up a huge chunk of land west of the Euphrates River. Crassus, of course, didn't have the authority to make that deal. More importantly, he didn't trust the Parthians not to kill him. But the legionaries, realizing that this was their only chance to make it out alive, told Crassus that, sure, the Parthians might kill him. But if he didn't try to negotiate their way out of this, they would kill him themselves. What happened next isn't exactly clear. It seems like when Crassus showed up to talk, one of the Parthians tried to grab the reins of his horse. This spooked the Romans. Swords were drawn, and all of the Romans in the party except Crassus were killed. It said that the Parthians then grabbed Crassus and, recalling his love of gold, melted some in a pot before pouring it down his throat. The Parthians then rounded up the surviving legionaries and put them in chains. But if they hoped to make it back to Rome one day, they were about to be disappointed. The Parthians went east instead, marching the defeated Romans into the heart of the empire. According to Plutarch, the Parthians singled out one legionary who had the misfortune to look a little bit like Crassus. They dressed him up as a woman and paraded him in front of the captives, giving everyone in the empire the chance to mock him as they took the men east. Now, here's where things get a little fuzzy. We don't know for sure what happened to these legionaries after this. They basically disappear from the historical record, or at least from Roman records. In the 1940s, Homer Dubbs, a professor of Chinese history at the University of Oxford, proposed an interesting theory. You see, Parthia sat right between two major empires, the Romans on one side and the Han Chinese on the other. And in between the Chinese and the Parthians were the nomadic tribes of Central Asia. The Chinese and the Parthians were always looking for troops to garrison their borders against these tribes. According to Dubbs, the Parthians looked at at least some of these captured Romans and thought that they might still be useful for fighting. So they took these legionaries east. There they ended up fighting against a tribe called the Xiongnu. The Xiongnu eventually hired some of these Roman soldiers as mercenaries, and they took them with them when they fought the Chinese at the Battle of Shishi. Dubs based this idea on the fact that the Chinese accounts of the battle describe a strange group of enemies fighting in what they called a fish-scale formation, overlapping their shields to protect themselves from arrows. This bears a striking resemblance to a formation the Romans called the testudo, or tortoise formation, which was a standard part of their legionary training. According to Dubs, some of these troops were captured in the battle, and once again, their captors decided to settle them on the frontier in a place called Liqin, in what is now the Gansu province of China. And today, the province makes a big deal of this reported Roman connection. In the town of Liqin, you can even find a statue of a Roman legionary today, some 4,000 miles from Rome. Now, there's little hard evidence that any Roman soldier ever ended his days in this dusty village in China, but it still makes me think that maybe there's a chance that somewhere, in the mists of history, hiding a few men who made that incredible journey from one end of the world they knew to the other. Men who spent their lives at war against alien enemies until they finally settled in a place so far away from where they were born that it might as well have been the moon. They left everything and everyone they knew, settled in a place no one like them had ever been, married into a new culture, started families, and within a few generations, the fact that they had ever been anything but Chinese was forgotten. Of course, maybe it's just a crazy theory, and maybe no Roman was ever in Liqian. But what I like about this story, and why I wanted to talk about it, is that there's this human element hidden underneath it. People who love history love it because they have the ability to empathize with people who have been dead for a thousand years. And how can you not empathize with these men who, 
may have found themselves on an incredible journey from east to west, cut off from everything they knew, enslaved, spending their lives fighting other people's battles. And the image that sticks with me when I think about this story is that sometime around 30 BC, a Roman legionary found themselves in the mountains of western China, gazing at the sun as it set and dreaming of a home he would never see again.